This is the feel of the gut torn city. This is the repetition of work, sleep, eat, sex. This is the life seen in the buskers. This is the search for meaning. This is for those who are open minded. This is for anyone who likes to chill. This is for people who like our music. This is for people who don't. This is not for racist dickheads. This is not for the money alone. This is not better than anything else. And it's not worse than anything else. This is the sound of the city. This is the sound of culture. But most of all, this is what you wanted to be. Welcome to The Space Between. Today we're interviewing Mr. Bob Lunn. We're going to be focusing more on, on archaeology and uh, some activities he was involved with in WA. Uh, but really, to get to know Bob, uh, he's, uh, he's ex-Navy. Uh, he spent uh, years studying Kung Fu. He was involved in Scientology, high-pressure sales, uh, occult and magical orders. Um, he's He's done a lot of things. So uh, his philosophies on life are really interesting and um, his perspective is, is quite unique. Um, now, at the moment, Bob's more interested in sort of common law and sovereignty and free man movements. Now, we won't be getting into that too much today, uh, but in the next episode, we will be talking to someone else about that very topic. So check out episode two with Kurt Robinson for more on uh, common law. So without any further ado, let's start the show. Enjoy. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode one of D Bob, you were born in Germany, is that correct? Deutschland, yeah. <laughs> Deutschland. <laughs> and you were born there, but you didn't live there the whole time. You got moved around heaps, is that correct? Yeah, I'd spent a couple of years in Germany, a couple of years in Singapore, a couple of years in Germany. Um, two years was pretty much a posting, dad being in the army. And um, but it was Germany somewhere, Germany somewhere. Um, but pretty much most of my schooling up till the age of nine um, was in British Army schools in Germany. Okay, and then you ended up in Perth. At what age did you actually get to Perth? Uh, nine. Nine. So yeah. And while you were in Perth, you got into the Navy, and you were fifteen. When yeah. You the Navy. So six years after my arrival in australia yeah i joined the navy 15 oh yeah i did an apprenticeship and like the age group then you know pretty much was 15 and a half to 17 and so as soon as i was 15 and a half and able to i joined the navy you loved your country your new country so much that you just felt obliged to uh, defend its borders no no it was it was whatever the romanticism that drew me to that in the first place it was never initially something like that once you're in and, and you've been uh, a part of the machine for indoctrination you start to think that way but the my initial ideals um could have been just watching movies watching tv i mean we're talking about the era of, of Macau's navy and stuff and it's like i'd watch american movies and stuff for their warships and the aircraft car i mean we had nothing like that in our navy but i mean initially actually wanted to join the american navy when i realized that you can't i thought oh well australian navy will have to do then <laughs> next best thing <laughs> And um, while you were at the Navy, you got involved in the occult, or you got interested in the occult. Uh, what was the organization that you were involved with? Well, I've been involved in various esoteric groups. Um, it, like, my initial interest was definitely pre-Navy. I definitely had a, an affinity. I used to um, be aware of things and do things at a very young age that, I guess, got indoctrinated out of me um, to fit into the, the mold of a, a military person. But... Um, 
during my service in the Navy. I had a, a re-emergence, I guess. Um, and it's like it was in such conflict with the whole purpose of a military mind or lack of <laughs> a mind to what the, the, the military really want. And I was just too much of a free thinker. And at that point, just I'd already you know, identified we live in a falseness and I wanted to explore on my own without being given reality. And it sounds like you explored quite a bit because you eventually became a high priest of... I was a high priest. It's an organisation called the Church of Wicca Australia, which was a first sort of organised conglomerate. Um, Prior to its inception, uh, I was high priest in in covens in Perth. And um, when that came, we got on board on that. It was actually probably four or five years as a high priest and but again just things changed um energies flowed i needed something new something different and um i became involved in the magical order at the time referred to as the oto auto templi orientis which is one of uh, alistair crowley's sort of um from history of the golden dawn and and that era i was involved a couple of years in that but uh, again it's just whether it was that or whether it was Scientology or whether it was spiritualism. Uh, I mean, even like as a child, you know, before the Navy, um, that's one good thing. My parents were quite supportive of me and, and as long as it wasn't a, a uh, form of recognized sort of religion. So I used to go to Jehovah's Witness meetings. I went to Catholic Sunday schools. I went to Protestant Sunday schools, just you know, looking and looking and found it all very empty. And during that time, you were also involved in like high pressure sales and that kind of thing. Is it like? Well, that was after I got out of the navy. After um, okay, so after my initial time out of the navy, my first real gainful form of employment um, was actually as an insurance agent for National Mutual. Okay, a lot of people nowadays might not remember insurance agents, and then the banks pretty much took over that industry. Okay, but yeah. That, uh, I do remember the ads. I remember the little like gold egg national mutual ads. Yeah, and Alan Pease was uh, like a huge part of my training project at the time with his you know, uh, body language series and stuff like that. Um, motivational seminars, personal development programs. It was a huge part of, uh, of my life at that point. And around the same time, uh, so you said Scientology was something you got into, but archaeology uh, became a passion as well. Like what... what when did that start? And um, in the early 90s, like when I first got the internet, I was like, man, people who've grown up with the internet just so take that for advantage. I mean, for me, it was like this massive... I mean, the, my only source of, of knowledge outside of mainstream media back then were things like Reader's Digest, Book of Strange Stories, Amazing Facts, or something you'd buy from the newsagent as a weekly magazine. I mean, it was so hard just trying to find sources for things like that so i was pretty quick on the net and things like that i was actually part of an email group and um part of the the people used to correspond with on that um, david ike was one in particular and um if people think david ike's weird now imagine what they thought of him in the 90s (laughs) i thought this dude's onto something no so uh he he initially actually got me interested just in his post he had a website at the time called liati l-i-a-t-a love is all there is liati.com and that's how i first heard of David Icke and then from him yeah. expanded into reading works of later on like Graham Hancock and it was like man these people are writing about stuff I've always known but just haven't been able to and I thought 
I want to be an archaeologist. <laughs> Sweet. Okay, so you got the interest and then you studied archaeology at uh, University of Western Australia, is that Yes, right? UWA. UWA, yeah. Um, I had to take mature age because I left school when I was 15, so did mature age entry. And UWA is actually like, as far as their admittance levels and ratings go, is the hardest university to get into in the country. Mm. And so I didn't actually score high enough. So I actually went to another uni uh, called ECU and studied philosophy um, as my major at that one. But I took a unit cross-institutionally with UWA. Mm-hmm. And the, the units I chose at ECU were deliberately areas I knew I'd be good at. So I HD'd my first semester at uni at ECU and so reapplied with UWA and got in for second semester. And it's interesting. I wanted to stick with philosophy. Mm-hmm. But I, when I got to you, because I wanted to like be archaeologist slash philosopher because I decided to fill the time I was a double major and um, when I found out that the head of the philosophy department was a Catholic priest I just thought eh, maybe it's me but that does seem to have some kind of conflict of interest of people expanding their minds so mm, I actually perhaps. went and spoke to a, one of my lecturers from ECU that I had a, a you know we sparked off a decent relationship with and I said to her like you know what do you think? She says, anthropology, Well, Anthropology. She was an anthropologist herself. And I thought, okay. And it's interesting. Like, I got into that. So, I did my archaeology and anthropology. Yeah. And I, again, I hate, actually, I only got one day, but I HD'd most of anthropology. Whereas with archaeology, the reason I went to uni, um, I was, like, getting, like, credits. <laughs> so, I did much better at anthropology than I did archaeology. Okay, interesting. And... You completed that degree, yes. and so what? What's the end? Is, is Archaeo- it's just a degree, a doctorate. BA, what is no. it? I'm so um, useless with BA, you. To actually like publish in Australia, you actually need to have a PhD. Okay. And to actually like lead or consult, you've got to have either masters or first degree honours. Okay. Can, now, can you just define those three terms? So, to publish, what are you publishing in? Um, peer review magazines. So, accepted, recognised academic journals how many of those are there for archaeology in australia the main one is the triple a um australian archaeological association they put out an orange folded booklet Um, it's usually about seven or eight stories filled with people's results of measuring shells and stones with calipers and rulers and and then arguing amongst each other's theories Okay, and then the other two things you said lead, did you? Or what was the other two things you needed a doctorate for? Ma- no, that, that's just to, to publish. So yeah. to really like compete in that industry, I guess, minimum is a PhD. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to like set up your own business and it's a consulting firm and, and um, call yourself an archaeologist, you need to also have then done your honours and okay. then preferably... Ma- I mean, some, some places won't even hire you without minimum masters or an honours and Which is another twelve years on top of your degree. Twelve years. Uh twelve months. Sorry, an extra okay. year. Yeah, I saying, your degree. That's yeah. an intense degree, right there. Yeah, okay. and just for the work I'd already done in the field, I'd, I'd already realised that the, the romanticism of why I wanted to be in archaeology was actually gonna just that's not what archaeology is. But initially, I thought, you know, you've got to get in there to change that. But uh, it's, it's going to take a few more generations before that happens. Every major leak, leap that takes place in this industry is pretty much when someone dies. And suddenly, you know, new people can come in with something that might have been slightly offensive to the person 
that died that never would have got published. It's it's a very very guarded industry. It's like what what can and cannot be said. Interesting. Okay, so you you would realize pretty quickly that uh, perhaps you were not going to find satisfaction within archaeology, but you did work as an archaeologist for a time. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I spent a year actually like working doing actual archaeology work uh, for councils, society like uh, Fremantle Council, uh, Augusta Historical Society. We did some work on their old mill down there. Um, and then, but, uh, you know, we've got to realise colonialism in Australia, there's, we've only got 200 years. There's not a lot of what people think of. when they, I mean, People hear the word archaeology. Uh, word association, the very next word is going to be pyramid. <laughs> sure. uh, it's it. Yeah, but I, I hear what you're saying, but surely there is, you know, millions, thousands, whatever, of years worth of other things to find before the colonials came to Australia, right? What's what's predominantly done in Australian archaeology is indigenous work, so the identifying of stone tools and so forth. Unlike Europe, where stone tools reached a very highly developed stage of development simply because the materials available, uh, Australia just with its geological state that just wasn't available the um st- like stones that were available to especially in the, the west southwest which is in Noongar territory they actually created uh, a micro leaf technology of their own simply be out of necessity of the fact that they just had crap stones basically when you bang a stone together try and make an edge and it just shatters like crisp very crystalline structure i like that um before rotnest island separated from the mainland there was an area that um, they used to like gather their stones from there, but uh, pretty much once Rotnest separated, the stones available to them to actually make tools with were were very very limited, and it shows that ingenuity of what they were able to do with what they had. But recognizing and identifying those because they're, I mean, you're talking like looking at two rocks. Okay, which rock has been dropped and chipped? Which rock has purposely been modified by man? for specific intention, which is the definition of an artefact. And artefacts are predominantly what we're, we're looking for. And who are you looking for the artefacts with? What, is it through universities or, or like are you um, assessing places that mining operations want to... In, in Western works? Australia, it is actually law before any land development can be produced. That, uh, oh, I can't even remember, an SA14 or something has to be filled out um, to say that the land is able to be used. Uh, in Hay Street in Perth, when the law courts, um, there's a, a spade on the news for all that. A lot of people, criminals, running away, <laughs> waiting for their... You know, they go back, oh, your case is up. Oh, where's he gone? Oh, he's gone. And the news made it a bit... So they decided to build an underground tunnel from the, the courts in Perth across the road to... Um, I can't remember what used to be there. And we had to, to survey that site before they were actually able to build on it just to say, yes, the land is sterile. So it is. It is actually Command written as law in the West Australian. Uh, <laughs> That's statute. an awesome way to put it. The land is sterile. You may commence your rape and pillage. Um, so I'm going to hand it over to Mr. Jerome now uh, to continue asking you questions about radness. Would you like to take the microphone? How you doing, Bill? Mr. Jerome. Uh, so uh, I'd just like to ask how you would describe what archaeology is. Okay, archaeology is the study of either man or environment modified by man in a tool format. Like, for example, um, 
monkeys, chimpanzees. Chimpanzee can find a really decent stick. It will go to a tree, wrap it in um, sap, make it nice and sticky, and then stick it into an ant hole and get ants. Mm -hmm. But it must find the perfect stick to do that. It could not pick up a branch and modify the stick itself. And that's actually where we, we draw the genus of Homo from. Um, Pre-Homo, the initial Homo habilis, Homo erectus, up into anatomically modern Homo sapien. Um, the distinction of the first Homo genus was that they actually modified for a specific intent an item. The earlier um, identities of, say, the Pithecines, Australopithecus, most famous uh, Lucy, the one found by the Leakeys, South Africa, mm -hmm. full name Australopithecus afarensis. It was pretty much just a small monkey. Uh, within archaeology, Darwinism is pretty much the skeleton that it's built on and no reinterpretation or suggestion of anything other will be accepted and unless you're prepared to toe the Darwinian line, you're just not going to get anything published. In my own personal opinion, Homo sapien has been actually around for the same periods of time. And unless you hear this about the missing link. There is a missing link between every single genus. <laughs> it is an assumed. Uh, it makes more sense to me that they're different species rather than that they... But, hey, that, that's you, know, you can go into ancient aliens from there with genetic modifications and, or you can go into various theories. But the fact is mm. there is nothing linking any of these genuses together. Uh, Michael Cremo, I believe his name's book, uh, Forbidden Archaeology, covers anomalies where, um, you know, Artifacts have, have long predated any form of suggestion even of... I mean, Homo sapien, again, dates do vary from... So within the conservative field, you're looking at 80 to 120,000 years ago, the emergence of us as a species. Uh, and Neanderthals died out uh, within sort of 10, 20,000 of that. So in the history of the planet we're attributed a very, very small window of existence. Hmm. Uh, but so how then would you differentiate the, the spirit of archaeology from that of, say, anthropology or history, in that they all study uh, human being and human consciousness and, and the human alterations of the environment? Uh, yeah, how would you, how would you separate the, those three fields? Okay, history is a personal account documented of what happens, an event took place and someone actually documented it. That's history. So in as far as historical documents go, to get a, an in-depth behind or even in between the lines idea of what's going on, you need to know something about that person. Yeah. That kind of information is not always available in you know, the odd page or here of, of an historical document. Archaeology is used often to back up historical claims mm -hmm. so uh, so let's how much truth is it to this and pretty much every case it's actually been something quite to the contrary yeah um so so maybe archaeology is the material basis of history as a field there's an american anthropologist by the name of alan thorne in fact he was the one that came up with the um luminescence dating um actually can i just just take a sidetrack here um as far as indigenous occupation within australia 
um, when I was at school, certainly, you know, we were all taught the, the 40,000 year thing, 40,000 years. The only reason they dated them to 40,000 years was because that is the extent of radiocarbon dating. Yeah, so it's like a peak. Yeah. Rather than saying it's peak, though, they... That's they... the maximum we can prove. Therefore, yep. that's all we're going to say. But when advanced technologies of uh, AMS came out, for example, and they were re- able to re-evaluate carbon dating, uh, advanced mass spectrometry is just, rather than actually using a mathematical formula to work out the ratio from C12 to C14, it actually measures its dissipation. And that pushed the dating of, of radiocarbon dating to 48,000. So redate these artifacts. Oh, okay, yeah, they've been here 48,000 years. Yeah. <laughs> and when Alan Thorne did his thermoluminescence dating, thermoluminescence works on light charging crystal. So it, it, you cannot use it on anything that's seen light because what it actually does when it's exposed to light, it stores charge. Yeah. And then over time, that charge dissipates as well. So if you're working in a deep tunnel or in a cave or so forth, um, when you do take an, a datable piece um so organic mm. only organic items can be carbon dated yeah. um when you're working with the light because it it's more of a, a in that film you now geology so it doesn't have to be something organic it's something like massive but if it sees any form of light yeah before you get to actually take your measurements it's reset back to zero yeah so it's a lot of controversy in that field but he's dated some of the northwest indigenous to about seventy-five thousand. Still heavily debated in the industry, but it's a step forward. But uh, the, the difference, getting back to your initial question, with the differences uh, between uh, history and anthropology and these other ways of studying uh, humanity. Yeah, um, the actual anthropological an- angle is through association. Uh, it's what they call an ethnography, and that kind was very, very popular in, in colonialism days when. An anthropologist was literally a first point of contact, but mm. then of course each successive collection the, the the society is contaminated, and already they have Western ideas, Western angles, and there's a, a very very famous case in anthropology of, of uh, Margaret Mead, where she was a young woman who went and did an ethnography with this Fijian, and being a young woman of course in in the, the Fijian culture, mostly the young women of the village were her contacts, if you like, mm-hmm. her sources. And um, she wrote this account of them being an extremely um, promiscuous, free-loving, love-for-all type environment. Mm-hmm. And um, the next anthropologist to go there, Freeman, Friedman, and uh, yeah, he's being a, a mature senior male, so his main sources were from chiefs. And, so, and of course... They, they were so different yeah. that it was like they cannot possibly both be true. And even today, that the Friedman um, case is, is argued in anthropology is like you know, how much source can be taken from that. Hmm. So anthropology is predominantly from actual contact information gathered. I mean, there's two types of things. There's quantitative and qualitative. Mm-hmm. Quantitative is surveys, stats, numbers, which you, know, you can make statistics say anything you want pretty mm. much and oh, the cool. qualitative is the actual interviewing side of contacting sources and so forth okay um so but each of those individually can contribute to a picture mm-hmm. but instead they're all treated as isolated arguments against each other 
Okay, but uh, is the the human uh, resources and the human information at a different strata than the material objects? Like, do they create a framing for the understanding of the material objects, or do the two streams sit in parallel? Uh, I I didn't really think of archaeology as being uh, something that was ca carried out by uh, by interview and by survey. And no, no, that's anthropology. Oh, oh, yeah. I understand. Okay. And when we we got yeah. onto that track, so I mentioned Alan Thorne, and yeah. I got carried off in his old dating thermoluminescence. But yeah. what I was actually using him as a reference to try and answer that question, yeah, and then yeah, I got yeah. sidetracked. Yeah, he put it this way, and he put it beautifully: archaeology is the science of digging a square hole, mm -hmm. and the art of spinning yarn from it. Okay. And the best example, one of the units in archaeology, I can't remember if it's first or second year, but uh, one of the units we did for our tutorial, we were given a collection of someone's garbage for a couple of weeks. Not the actual garbage itself. So they'd all already volunteered for this project. It had been collated. We got photocopies and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So anything with their name, address, any like details was you know, penned out type stuff so it was to maintain their privacy but we had to tell their story from their garbage for two weeks cool. and that is essentially what archaeology is hmm. you're looking at midden piles remains scatters things that people have dropped and left behind yeah um so it really is telling us telling a story because yeah. the bits and pieces um if we were put it into like in a word formation you might have six words with which to form a page. Yeah. And you pretty much have to fill in the gaps. Hmm, I understand. Through the deck boards and went the pubs closed back with the flow go. Those of the head pain back to the bed frame. Fish bomber reefs get short lived relief checks. Vividly wrecked forts crawl through the deck boards and went the pubs closed back with the flow go. Those of the head pain back to the city in the day flares up against the eye. Rays reflect orange on the buildings in the sky. Cogs of the city start to grease into motion with female slash male workers seething in the ocean. Ways of tight faces with the blurring of suits roll Back into the office space ready for the bell toll Work switch, brain off, the suits carry undertow Pure repetition is the food of the brain when Aims tend to set for the highest of grace After shaving perfume on the necks of those who Search for the plankton to grow to large sizes To flow through hard prices with no human vices Hard smiles and firm hands clasped in discordant Face recognition of existence in the dormant Volcanic pressure point ready to be active But the clock strikes five and the tide rolls back with The alcoholic sunset Some get some rest but most just come get funds for the fun fest Brains hit off on the pain switch fears will drown more Sounds of the world, then the years kill. Peers laugh to cover up who's bugger butt. Bruise in the cup, don't fuse with the muck. There's hair to be slicked up, girls to be picked up, troubles to be fixed up, drinks to be mixed up. Fish from the reefs get short lived relief checks. Vividly wrecked forts crawl through the deck boards. And when the pubs close, back with the logo. Those of the head pain back to the bed frame. Fish from the reefs get short lived relief checks. Vividly wrecked forts crawl through the deck boards. And when the pubs close, back with the logo. Those 
came back with the bit brain The city is a creature on the land without The need for feet or hands and mouth It breathes in the dark with reams of heat But unlike a normal being doesn't need to sleep It's wired on pet pills and sex scene texture Freeing of the pain, neon painted architecture Next to bushland, it feeds from the nutrients Draining out the taste and then replacing with pollution Sensing the danger it crawls in the shell So they'll know it's there only if they hear the bell toll Untold thoughts in the brain of the CBD Hide from the light, no sight so secretly Even distribution of the economic particles Is covered by its mandibles of media and articles Bones and dreams are get broken with the paper song Wounds in the flesh get lightly operated on Long other arms reach out to the beachheads Each from a dread which drives it to death Wish paranoia manifest Fear of the enemy Survival in the hive of all the calls to kill it endlessly Morbid halls of fantasy attempted to tempest Tense stress marks in parks within the dense mess Born of the earth in its girth we swim As it waits for the time when the tide rolls in Fish from the reefs get short, live relief checks Vividly wrecked thoughts crawl through the deck boards And when the pubs close back with the pogo Those of the head pain back to the bed frame Welcome back to the podcast. And I'll hand over Jerome. Hi, yeah. So uh, we had this question uh, trying to disambiguate uh, history, anthropology, and archaeology. And so I guess that raised a question in my mind that uh, what what can we see about humanity or about life through the window of archaeology that we can't see? Uh, through any other window to get any real window into mankind what you need to use is the three of those together as a tool in some collective discipline mm-hmm. at the moment the three are like it's one of those like, within uni departments that, that are sort of like against each other they're in competition history versus archaeology versus anthropology yeah. and it's like i'm going to be right and i'm going to prove you two wrong but mm. now it's different so I mean, history, just, just in recapping, history is someone's actual recorded thoughts on a view. I mean, regardless of how deep you think uh, history of certain periods, you know, especially because in school when you first start learning history, it's, history is taught as fact. But you know, the bottom line is it's one person's, whoever recorded it, it's their, their, I mean, you've got to think back that literacy rates as well. Hmm. I mean, whoever is re- recording that, their personal flavour is part of it. So archaeology is used to try and remove the personal flavourings dealing just with the facts. And then anthropology would be talking to descendants of that time frame for their, um, I hate using the word mythology because of the connotations, but uh, their history, if you like, their yeah, verbal, their stories. oral yeah. history, their stories that... Yes, and whether the story comes in, in song, dance, or whatever format, their histories. Um, so the three of them are three totally different things that if you analysed all three, you would get a far more accurate picture of what was really going on. Hmm. 
but so so you you're saying that uh archaeology aims towards a kind of more objectivity or more uh more factual less interpretive less soft interpretive uh, way of uh, yes um anthropology soft interpretive archaeology hard interpretive that that would definitely work um when you i mean for example when you're getting dates from a setting um and again this goes to inaccuracies of dating um you can only carbon date organic matter mm-hmm. so in a fireplace or something that you found you're dating some charcoal or something like that the date that that charcoal will return is the date that tree died yeah. Not the date they had their Sunday afternoon barbecue yeah. where it was burnt. So there's, and even just um, artifacts, I mean, you don't know what's been traded, what's been carried, what's come from somewhere else. It's, it's all assumption work, yeah. um, which is why it's a very slow, progressive field because no one wants to speculate. That's left to, to anthropology. But um, even though at, at a level, <laughs> the whole field of archaeology is speculation. It's, it's the, the skeleton, if you like, of the study. Yeah. It's like if something else has fallen, it's proved down the track to be incorrect, and we need a point to go back to, like a Windows screenshot, if you, know, you go back to a safe, last time restored type thing. Yeah. Archaeology is a science that we'll, we'll go back to. Okay, we know this. We know that this happened then. And then why, what for, and other fleshy parts of the body you build. So uh, you would, archaeology would be the skeleton of the body. Anthropology would be the flesh. Uh, and then history tells us what someone else thought about it. Hmm. Okay. So uh, in, in terms of archaeology in Australia, how is, the, how is the situation of Australia, how does that create differences in the way archaeology is practiced here or what issues does it that bring to the fore? Okay, there's um, one job that we did for the Fremantle Council. Um, it was three, three totally separate like eras of time. We were looking for an old tram depot that Fremantle used to run. And there was also an attempt to find a police or military barracks that from the historical record had been referenced, but no one really knew where it was. And we actually dropped three pits in. Um, someone did the, the historical research side of it to find out as much information to give us a, a varied area, but then literally randomly just dropped three pits. Um, but one of the actual areas that was, was highly contested we, we, where we did have some artifactual scatter was like nowhere near the scene. So we either found something totally different that had not been documented or recorded or the assumption as to where these barracks were were totally in the wrong place. Oh, sorry, what do you mean by scatter? Scatter is a collection of artifacts. So, um, it, you know, you might have someone s- sat down and chipped away or sharpened their, one of their tools or implements or, um, yeah, it's just no, it's more than one artifact, essentially. Oh. You could think, think of scatter as a plural of artifact. Okay, so they're not necessarily artifacts linked to the same period or era or anything. They're just no. found in, the, in similarly, like, proximity in space. Yes, exactly. Okay. There, there may or may not be any relationship between them. Okay. And that's, you can't actually... Uh, a lot of assumed dating comes from a stratigraphic layer. Stratigraphic layering is, is a geological context. As you know, various things happen 
to the earth over time you have periods of high moisture periods of low moisture mm-hmm. uh, volcanic activity and so forth that if you were to i mean a best example is if you look at the side of a cliff that's been washed away it's mm-hmm. all layered you've got all these lines going across yeah. each of those lines is a story yeah it tells what was happening at that particular period of time well the same scale the same theory or the same substance still exists in archaeology at a lesser level with the dirt that's a different level even like you dig a meter say um say you go three meters deep you can see layers of different colored dirt hmm. reflect different la- levels of occupation and you get this big blank period of the same period that's what's called sterile ground mm-hmm. so you pretty much know that you've gone before any event okay. so then the layers above that you've got to start working out, okay what was actually happening here and as we start finding like fish bones like, ah okay obviously these people had some kind of maritime thing going now they must have access to fish yeah um so you can start working out what they were eating and then um when there's a periods where some item is in abundance other periods where it's it's scarce uh, you get an idea of of what was going on at the times Hmm. Uh, so so it is a very uh, material way of uh, examining uh, life and yes we're looking at something that has either been made by man or modified by man Hmm. That that is again the definition of artifact. It must have been at least been purposefully modified to fit a particular job. So so you're seeing uh, in, intentions or, or some a, a utility that has been uh, m- that the artifact has been modified with in mind. Yes, whether it's uh, making an axe or whether you're making a knife, you pick up a stone and then you start napping this st- or chipping away at the stone so that it has a particular edge. You know, if you want a, something solid and blunt for hitting or whether you want to be able to skin an animal, there's different modifications you would make to a stone to be suited best to that job. Mm-hmm. And that, that qualifies it as an artifact. But predominantly what you're looking at in is, is rubbish, people's mm-hmm. rubbish, the things that they've thrown away. It's, it's just the best you know, collection. Yeah. Well... So that's interesting, and you know there are jokes about the kind of things that'll be left behind from from our culture. So, uh, what kind of things do you think would be most likely from the present day to become artifacts in the future? Considering most of the stuff we make out of nowadays is plastic or steel, um, within a thousand years there'd be nothing really? left of that. Stone is the thing which lasts time. I mean, steel just er- erodes back to, to dust. What about plastic? I plastic thought most just plastics are in, like fully inert. Well, plastics will break down to their, their initial oil sort of compounds. But um, you can consider it like if it's got an anaerobic environment with no oxygen in the soil, things are going to preserve, but exposed to elements, they'll break down faster. Okay. But um, the things that we have today from the past... As, as you know, it's stone. Stone and bone. Right. Yeah, but yeah. steel, plastics would be gone. How long does plastic... I mean, I'm guessing there's varying degrees of the strength of plastic, but, uh, you know, how long would it actually take for it to disappear? Or Well, the big push with plastic, like especially shopping centres with their plastic bags and that sort of thing, is to break down very, very quickly within a couple of years. 
Um, but some of the like you know, utensils, things you might eat off or, or drink out of and so forth, uh, they'll last. And I'm, I'm not really sure on this. This is an area, I'm not up on the dates of plastics, but into the thousand years. But steel, again, breaks down at that period of time as well. So a city like uh, Melbourne, for example, 5,000 years, some spaceman lands and does some archaeological, the, the stone base or the concrete bases, concrete, that's long-lasting stuff too. It's pretty much stone and, and crap anyway. But yeah, the actual buildings, the steel, the girders, the glass, the plastic furniture, all be gone. It would just pretty much just be the foundations. And then they'd be speculating that we were an advanced spacefaring civilization because of all the rocket launch pads lying around in this particular site that were our high-rise buildings. Mm, so uh, back to the, the situation of archaeology in Australia. Uh, what are some other differences that happen just just due to the fact that it is such a unique uh, country? The um, because predominantly you're working with like stone tool sort of development, um, archaeology in Europe and other countries highly value the Australian archaeology of that work because they've got you know, thousands of years of contamination. So now it's great if you want to. You know, find a Roman city or Roman barracks or something like that. But uh, work done on the evolutionary process, actual on you know, fossils of people and so forth and the tools and stones, um, other than South, uh, the bottom of South Africa where the Leakies did their work at uh, Gorge, uh, Old Darwin Gorge, which is where predominantly the, the record is taken from the fact that you know, we evolved in that part of the country and then spread out from there well out of africa and regional two still contested theories today and every now and then one makes a bit of ground and then the next one makes a bit of ground but so what are the two or what are the main uh theories about the cradle of civilization and where our genetic heritage comes from the out of africa theory uh, espouses that the development um like from one species to the other, um, happened in South Africa. And then at the point of Homo erectus, decided to explore the world. And so they took out from South Africa and every branch of our tree up until this point has come from that tribe that left Africa. The re and the regionalization or the regional theory is that each stage happened in a different part of the world of its own uniqueness had nothing to do with this tribe coming so it's out of africa and regional meaning uh, regional just it happened all over it wasn't just this one group so they're the two main contesting um, i've heard mentioned that there are people who hypothesise that uh, it's there's more evidence to suggest people came out of Australia to Africa than vice versa. I'm not sure if that's just like a specific example for between those two countries, but um, based on the heritage of our indigenous culture, uh, have you heard this, or do you is there something that validates that particular theory? Or was that when you bring that up in, with archaeologists or um, 
especially uh, professors of that field, the argument against that due to the timing and isolation they would say if man developed in Australia, we would be marsupial. And you, that's it. You can't get any more out of it from them. But that's that's their reason why man did not. Because at the time of separation, all the, the native species of, of uh, mammal in Australia being marsupial, they're saying if, if man developed here, man would be a marsupial. And that's that's as far as, as they will go on that. Okay, so how far would you go if you were to create a case for um, that theory? Do you know anything about that particular theory or who's um, currently espousing it? In a, I'm guessing they're from Australia, um, the people who have come up with that theory. I don't know. It's, yeah. it's one of those um, dichotomy fields within the industry. It's like it's either A or B. That's that's contested and argued. Okay. And well, I, I mean, I heard this from from Dad, so I don't know where he got it from. Perhaps I have to ask him for this next episode. Yeah, it's um, it's certainly it is out there, and I have heard of it because yeah. so I have heard the, the argument being brought up that no, it couldn't possibly be because we'd all be we'd have pouches. Is pretty much what they're saying. If man developed so here, what work did you do in in Perth, or what what is from your experience being? Um, Discovered or unearthed in archaeology? Down past Margaret River, Augusta Way, there's a, a cave called Devil's Lair, and it was excavated. Uh, pretty much most of the work that done there is actually by a, um, a doctor from UWA, and she's like pretty much written a book on that place, and that's where they've got the oldest datings in Western Australia of occupation which at each step of radiocarbon dating needs have, have met the criteria to go to the maximum that they can... And it's a rock shelter, essentially. It was used by the indigenous peoples there. And it's called Devil's Lair. Um, why, is why, why is it called Devil's Lair? Don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> I'll um, find out. It could have been... Oh, we've got the power of the future here. I should actually could be going to that we do this. Devils in Western Australia, time era, or it could have been... I mean, look at the story of Rot Nest Island. I mean, originally they called it Rat Nest Island. Flinders called it Rat Nest Island because he thought the quokkas were massive rats. Yeah. Um, who knows where they're these not, stories originally... They're not rats. They're soccer balls, as a lot of uh, untoward people have discovered. There is a term, quokka soccer. Quokka soccer, that, yeah. Uh, performed mostly by drunks. And um, I hear... I hear the penalty for Quokka Soccer now is like ridiculous. Like they've upped it so far because of because they just needed to wipe it out completely. But if you kick a Quokka these days, you're in trouble. Yeah, you'd, you'd be in more trouble than kicking a person in the head. For sure. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go the Quokkas. Save the Quokkas. Um, so Rottnest Island, is, where is that? It's just off the coast of, of Western Australia. It's about an hour out on ferry. Because uh, the Quokkas that, that we're talking about... Um, is, is two they're a marsupial a very large looking rat as it happens but um there's two species of them left one which is on rottenest island it has a very short little snout which is called the quokka and on a garden island which is just off of rockingham it is actually an island it's connected to the mainland simply by a bridge and used by the navy as a, a base hms sterling and on that island there is tamars which same sort of thing as quokkas but with a a roux-like yeah. snout. So where the quokkas are very sort of rattish, the tamars are like little miniature kangaroos. Yeah. Oh, so uh, back to something that uh, we talked about while we weren't recording. 
uh, I guess there's been uh, a lot more popularity of uh, this idea of finding out things by looking at uh, material objects, yes. like in CSI and this kind of... Yeah, and there's also um, GPA or ground penetrating radar. Now, the uh, project I worked on on Rottnest Island with uh, one of the, well, the elder, the Noongar elder of, of that area. And um, back in the day, like what they used to do, the colonial troops, they would gather the the people, the indigenous peoples together, put them into rowboats. Now, like I say, getting out to Rottnest Island on a hydrofoil ferry, it's a, it's a good hour sort of trip. All chained up, they would make them row out to this island and uh, they would you know, be used for, for labour on the island. At night time, na- naked most of them, they would just simply be chained around trees. Uh, every morning they would get up, one of their first jobs was to you know, bury the dead because people would just die overnight exposed to the elements. Dude, I've caught the ferry to Rottnest Island and I, my when it went over the waves and through the choppy water, my head or my hands could like hit the ceiling and they, it wasn't a massive roof, but with each wave you were just jumping into the air. Like it's brutal. Yeah, I've seen boats like there. literally go under the water and come back up again going through those waves. Yeah, it's a shocking piece of water. It's a very shocking piece of water. So, uh, yeah, in the morning they'd go up and they'd just bury the dead wherever. I mean, they were heathens, so they didn't deserve any sort of proper burial. Or I mean, they were just thrown out like the garbage, pretty much. And this is stories told to me by the, the elder that I was working with on this project. And so there's a design or was a designated area on Rottnest Island marked off by a, little, a few little fences and signs saying the graveyard. But it was just... They just randomly picked this block of land. So we had this one-week project out there. And it, was, it was great. Every day I got to go back and forth and rot nest on, on the ferry. Um, but my, actually, I remember it was a stinking hot period of time too. Um, we had like, It was high 30s and 40s most of the day we were doing the work on this site. But uh, just essentially you're dragging a box. You're walking up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, dragging a box behind you, which is taking seismic readings into the ground. So we're looking for remains, essential human remains, um, whether they were, you know, you can tell like the change of density in the soil or whether there are actual physical remains that would need to be followed up later on. But what we were looking for initially was just anomalies. I mean, just a ping on the radar. So we could, but, and we had to mark the pings. And... As I say, you're not going to know whether it's a body or whether it's a grave or what it is until you know, something further is done. But our job was to, to mark the area. And it was huge. Yeah. Um, way, way beyond the barriers that had ever been you know, decided upon. And there's a, yeah, there's a resort and sort of uh, Rottnest has become a very popular tourist attraction. Uh, in Western Australia, but the results of this work that we did, they were able to sanction off an area to say, no, this is sacred ground, and I'm actually listed with these as I am the last Wadjala to have walked on that land. Cool. It, no one can walk on it. It's, it's Noongar land now. Uh, so what kind of things would, were discovered? You were saying it was uh, an incredible discovery. Well, just the the enormity of 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 the results from the radar. I mean, obviously, someone I guess somewhere was hoping that we'd get nothing and they'd just carry on, but the result was was pretty good. To the fact that the Noongar were able to 
to have that claimed as 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 their you know a special ground sacred ground to them and not to be used so yeah it was just that was a win that that archaeology can be used for fortunately it goes the other way as well um you know we people know that the, the turning force behind our planet spinning is not actually gravity but profit and it's uh everything revolves around that and certain companies that also like taking things out of the ground uh, hit restrictions and barriers when certain things are found that they can't do that. So, like anything in a a materialistic-based society, if you've got enough money, um, you can buy clear reports pretty much. There's always someone that will... I mean, I've never done this. I would never go there. It's so against what I do. But, um, yeah, they they have their pet archaeologists that just will sign off so that they can dig. Hmm. Mm. So so there isn't money for, uh, for pure explorative archaeology? It's no. all very... No, archaeology is called in now. It's in West Australian le- legislature now. If you want to build somewhere, you want to do something, it has to be cleared by an archaeologist to make sure it has no significant scatters or significance to uh, Indigenous peoples in the area. And it's it's pretty much just used as a a tool against them. To do. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I've, I've got friends who are archaeologists. I've got friends who do archaeology still and you know, still love that work. But... Um, yeah, it's it's not something like, hey, let's give some archaeologists a million dollars and get them to go and do something. It's like, this has to be done. We want to do it as quick as possible with the least amount of expenditure. It's, you know, it's an asset list and sort of opposite. What's the word I'm looking for here? Assets and liabilities. Yeah, it's a liability on a column. Yeah. So, um, yeah, again, in, in Europe and, and other, uh, Egypt, South America, Mexico. There's a romanticism, and there's like a, just it's, it's big structures, and there's known stuff. In Australia, it's just so so much insignificance is put on anything pre-colonialism. No one wants to spend money to do that, and the only time money is is when someone needs to defend a claim against a large multi national corporation that also wants to take things out of the ground so and so i guess that would change everything about the about the the field and the industry and the profession the education it would all be uh to a degree geared towards its function in our well yes if you i mean i went the the reason i studied archaeology was out of romanticism of, of ancient cultures and so forth and so i had like my reasons to be there were pretty much I just wanted to hone my research skills as well. It was a great way to do it. And it was just like, yeah, I want to go to uni. Yeah, I'll get a degree in archaeology. What, what, you know, it was fun. But your yeah, average uni student, that, you know, their parents have just put them through uni with the expectation of once they come out of uni, they use it for gainful employment. And the only form of ongoing continued gainful employment you're going to get in Australia um, guaranteed consulting would would be for mining companies and and so forth that have to or you know, council work even 
I mean, okay, that worked for Fremantle Council. That was a, a quite a, a nice. That was a a gem, if you like, because like the council wanted to do something. It was okay. It was for tourism, so don't get me wrong. There was still profit in it, but it wasn't for for negative reasons. It's very very good reasons. And one of the actual sleepers that we did dig up. Uh, un- uncover, she said. We didn't dig it up. We left it perfectly preserved where it was. Um, but that section of the footpath, they've removed the concrete slab and actually made a perspex covering, and it's lit up so people can actually look down and and, and see that. So that, that there's still good stuff like that that goes on. But um, yeah, pretty much the the only way you're going to be gainfully employed in archaeology is consultancy work for where someone's got to build, someone's got to do something, and what they need is an okay. They do not want, actually, I've found that the most amazing discovery ever in Australian archaeology is like, no, no, let, let's, let's go back to this report again that says that there must be nothing here for us to continue building something we've sunk billions of dollars into already. Uh, you can see the picture. Yeah, so, so, so if you want so gainful so employment in that field, then that's what you need to do. So, uh, on the other hand, or on the other side of the coin, uh, if archaeology somehow became a very uh, a, a sexy thing to invest money in, oh, what kind of things could be done? Okay. What was the term they used to use back in uh, the days of, you know, when English gentlemen went out exploring the world, they would have a financial backer, what were they called? What's that term? A, um, like a patron? Patron, yes. Um, like someone says, look, hey, archaeology is my new thing. I just want to spend all my money on archaeology. Um, like a benefactor? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think patron was, you know, like for example, um, Lord Carnarvon was the, if patron's the word I'm looking for, was the patron of Howard Carter. Hmm. So that, but there was a, a prestige, my Oh, anyway, it doesn't matter at the point. But yeah, if someone wanted to do that, there's, there's plenty of, of unanswered questions. Um, you know, why people suddenly move from a certain area. Mm, um, yeah, but, so, but what kind of things could be done? How, how could money be used? And, and what, kind of, what kind of questions could we be searching for answers for uh, with more resources? There's an area in New South Wales called Lake Mungo, which is actually the uh, oldest cremation known of on the planet um and it was a and again there's is two in archaeology you know two species of indigenous peoples at the time that um one robust and one gracile just from differences in skulls but again this is a massively debated area today they're saying well look, you know that variance does exist still today between people and there's the other camp that says no these are two very distinct peoples that have migrated at different points of time um, but that on goes. Um, but that's that's whole areas is still yet to be discovered. There's areas in Victoria where the, they had eel farming going on on very high production. But that's just you know, since the initial report that people have put out and discovered. All that's gone on since then is people who've read that giving their opinion, and then people who've read that giving their opinion, and people who've read that giving their opinion. Again, it's, it's an expensive... but And also, you have to be careful because archaeology, once you've dug a site, it's like it's destroyed. The, the, archa- you, the process of retrieving archaeology is destructive. 
you, you can never go. And in fact, when you re, like when we rebury a pit that we've done, the level that we went down to, with um, you plastic like thick, heavy duty plastic, the stuff that's going to last the longest, um, and then a date marker on top. And one of my um, lecturers, uh, he always used to put a coin there with the date of the year. So you know, it's two thousand and four. He'd, he'd find a coin he's got with 2004 and he'd use that as his date marker. Um, but yeah, the pro- because the process of archaeology is destructive, that's why people say, oh, why don't you just, just dig down and find out? Why don't you just, you know, you're, you're you destroying get evidence get in the process of, of, you only get one chance. That's exactly right. Yeah. So when you're dealing areas, and also, you know, indigenous people don't like archaeologists digging up. In, in their lands and stuff like that. And again, it's the only times we do is when they, they need help to fight the white man system because yeah. they have to because the SA-14 says that they need to. Um, so, but the, 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 I mean, like, unlimited archaeology just doesn't exist in Australia. It's pretty much a field, other than like I mentioned before, just simply because of the availability and the recognition and the fact that most archaeologists in Australia work with indigenous stone work and so forth, um, European archaeology is more favoured over the last couple of thousand years, so they don't necessarily have those skills. So it's a good skill set. So if you wanted to go and work on like hominids, you know, prehistory archaeology, Australian archaeologists would be very good at that. But as far as working as an archaeologist in Australia, there's... There's nothing awesome or fabulous that, that you really could do. This has been an awesome chat, and we have to wrap it up for today's episode. I'll leave the wrapping to you, bro. Word. So, um, thanks for listening. Thanks, Bob. Peace out. Thanks, Mr. Jerome. Well, that's it for today's episode. Uh, you can find more episodes at www.inkalot.net. That's I-N-K-A-L-O-T dot net. Um, as well as more episodes of The Space Between, you can find some other podcasts that I've um, created, as well as um, podcasts like In Psychedelia and, and even like a little a pick of my favorite podcasts that you can find around the world. So if you're interested in that, check it out. You can also find all of the music that I've made, pretty much. I mean, anything that I've recorded that I have complete control over, I give away for free online. So you can go there and, and um, there's links to free downloads for all of that sort of stuff. Um, now, I'd like this to be a collaborative podcast between ourselves and you, the listeners. So, um, yeah, if you if you have anything you want to want to tell us, if you you know disagree with anything we're saying, if you think our information's a little bit off, and there's stuff you could clarify for us, then please you know send me an email. Uh, my email address is shiatsulink at gmail.com. That's s h i a t s u l i n k at gmail.com. And yeah, we're 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 open to any feedback you've got. Uh, also, if you'd like to be on the show to provide a counterpoint to some of the things we're, we're um, saying, then please, uh, please let us know. Any particularly interesting counterpoints or, or, or information or corrections, I will read out on the next show to make sure we keep it nice and balanced for you all. The music you heard today was from Fortnite Productions. Now, Fortnite Productions is probably my favorite uh, local hip-hop crew. Uh, they were based out of Melbourne when they were making music. They're not really making music together anymore. 
Uh, they've got two albums to date. One was called Quarantine, another one was called Death. And um, the two members of Fortnite Productions are MC Siphon, aka MC Purple Duck, aka my man Steve. Uh, he's the MC and producer for pretty much all the tracks. And also, of course, uh, probably one of the most well-respected DJs Australia has. Um, I, I say that from my biased Melbourne underground perspective, but uh, DJ Wasabi is hands down like uh, one of the most talented musicians that I've ever seen use uh, turntables. Uh, what I really like about his his work is that um, I mean he can he can drop the dope hip hop scratches. He can he can rock the party just like any. Uh, hip-hop DJ but he uses his scratches and the sounds that he produces to really add like melody and and meaning and emotion to the track so that's what I think really sets him apart from a lot of uh, a lot of DJs but yeah uh, if you're interested in that music it's pretty hard to find but uh, you can get in touch with me I can speak to the guys and I'll see if they're cool with me sharing it with you all Uh, because I mean if you wanted to get it you'd probably have to you know, meet one of them personally and go to their house and, and get a CD off them. I don't think, uh, yeah, I, I can't see them touring anytime in the foreseeable future. And I'm not even sure if you can download it offline. I should probably check that out. But yeah, if you're interested, just hit me up and I'll, um, I'll sort you out. And to take the podcast out, I'll leave you with the title track from the Fortnite Productions album, Quarantine. Enjoy. Under the impression that our race was in recession Facing massive man infection Cause we asked too many questions But natural selection has selected certain sections From a sectors of our nations in relation to their trust So some can have the cash while others starve And harsh of fascist parts Part seas of refugees and bomb them at the heart And start to make an earth where birth is stolen from the womb And swap the new synthetic methods that can make a human being Not fiction but prediction of the future of our race If we bomb ourselves until no longer can we procreate If we do survive the radiation then we'll need a nation built below the earth Cross where the fumes can't get to us Perfect world where boys and girls are grown and choose For smart computers born to think that no one but themselves exists A chrysalis Humans will encounter traps where others pass But never know their door will only open Once the other person's door is closed And then we will be safe And hate will not be found in any land Live our lives in peace And yet we'll never see another man The motherland will fade away And we'll forget we ever cease To have no human contact When we come to enter world peace Quarantine man trap Peace laced with ratsack Poison in the mouth Steel walls and cold meals All people born with emotional jaundice dawn of the new age rage is pointless quarantine man trap peace laced with rat sack poison in the mouth steel walls and cold meals all people born with emotional jaundice dawn of the new age rage is pointless Man, 
manufactured in a factory with tracks of electricity and microchips implanted in the brain to track complicity downloaded information in the cells to make a person smarter arms and knees genetically evolved to mold and work them harder feelings change to gain sensations of content no matter what the person really feels emotions trained to think it's real then the school taught that life is only this and never have we seen another way for man to exist history is only learned from after what became of the earth when bombs destroyed a surface with flame kids ain't growing to adults with jobs and stay dutiful unaware that there's a person in the next cubicle recreation turns into a prayer to a god that was invented by incentive from the people on top and so the world will keep repeating all its methods and then the sun dies and there will just be nothing again quarantine man trap peace laced with rat sack poison in the mouth steel walls and cold meals all people born with emotional jaundice dawn of the new age rage is pointless quarantine man trap peace laced with rat sack poison in the mouth steel walls and cold meals all people born with emotional jaundice dawn of the new age rage is pointless